Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. It's almost August, it's raining all over the country, so that is classic summertime for you. And we're here to set out the stories that are coming up in the week ahead. I'm Andrew Harrison, and here with the Crystal Ball and the Southwester, it's legend of TV journalism, Gavin Esler. Good morning, Gavin. Good morning, yes, and I can hear the rain going pitter-pat outside my window. Marvellous. Well, let's start with similarly cheery domestic politics and Rishi Sunak attempting a bonfire of green policies. Over the weekend, he told The Telegraph he was on the side of motorists. The Conservatives have spent the weekend briefing that they're abandoning their climate focus. And this morning's front pages are a climate change ignorer's Christmas list. The time has got PM gives green light for more North Sea drilling. The Guardian has ministers seek curb on 20 mile per hour limits in push to woo motorists. The Sun has PM vows to end anti-car moves, which includes reviewing low traffic neighbourhoods. And the FT has Britain makes it cheaper to pollute by watering down carbon market scheme. Gavin, have 495 votes in the Uxbridge by-election just ended serious climate focus in the UK? Well, yes, I think the focus that uh, we should be focusing on is focus groups, because obviously what the Conservatives have done have said, we are in real political trouble on just about everything. The economy is uh, very sluggish. People don't actually warm to the Sunak government. What on earth can we do? The focus groups say to recycle David Cameron and recycling is all what we're about these days End the green crap. And so that appears to be what they are trying to do. We haven't quite got to the desperation of the John Major's Cones hotline, but we're going pretty (laughs) much that way. So taken as a whole, what this means, it seems to me, is that Sunak is going to fight the next election. It's going to be quite a while before that happens. And we're going to have lots of headline grabbing and that grab the headlines policies to appeal to the conservative base. I did notice, for example, one conservative columnist in a newspaper that I won't mention, but it's owned by people who I understand are non-resident for tax purposes, confusing yet again weather, because it's wet outside, with climate and saying, you know, it's raining, so why do we have so much climate alarmism? So it seems that the conservatives are on message, and the message is we are going to pretend to be green a little bit, but we're not really. It is remarkable that, I mean, obviously, we're going into, uh, you know, recess politics now. So, you know, nothing in Parliament, everything happening in the newspapers, on the airways. It is remarkable that this sliver of a vote in Uxbridge seems to have blown up, not just the Conservatives' stance on green stuff, but also any serious Labour resistance to it. It is truly remarkable. And I think a lot of people have have spotted this. I mean, Private Eye's cover, if you take Private Eye magazine, is very interesting. They had Barbie on the front as the Conservatives going, yeah, we lost we lost two out of three by-elections, but we're terrific. We won one, and, yeah. And Labour was Oppenheimer going, we're doomed. You know, so it's Labour's response that, that surprises me. I think the Tories are clutching at straws. But why did Labour not just simply stick to the plan, lads? So we'll see how this develops. And the desperation goes further. I mean, Mr. Sunak is in Scotland today and he is talking about green carbon capture and the ACORN project. So he's giving money away. But of course, that comes at the same time as he's talking about 100 plus new licenses for drilling and exploration in the North Sea. So he's trying to have it both ways. But I should say that in Scotland, in the supposed conservative landslide of 2019, they managed six seats out of 59. So the reason he's going to Scotland is fairly obvious. There could be a wipeout in Scotland. And the Conservative and Unionist Party, as it used to be called, has never really looked particularly unionist in recent years because people in Scotland don't like them. Going all in on oil is clearly an attempt to set the terms of the debate. 
and they've been trying to paint Starmer as the ally of Just Stop Oil. We've seen absurd things like Johnny Mercer trying to cl- claim that Just Stop Oil funds Labour because the guy who founded Ecotricity donates to Labour and also donates to Just Stop Oil. Why has Starmer been so weak on defending his position here? I think because he doesn't want to make news. I mean, I think that's a simplistic way of looking at it. But really, he wants to, he he wants to say it's going to be steady as she goes. She's not. He's not doing exactly what Labour did in 1997, which is we're going to stick to the Conservative spending plans. But he doesn't really want to make news because things are going pretty well, and he doesn't want to give any opening. So what we're now seeing is the pre-election jousting. In Starmer's case, it is I'm going to defend, 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 and not actually. It's like looking at a boring football match. I'm going to defend, 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 and I don't want to give away anything. And from the Conservative Party, it is we are going to try to exploit any weakness. So we're going to look at wedge issues that really energize different groups of people in in different ways. So there'll be more gender stuff. There'll be more ending the quote, as Cameron said, green crap. And those kind of issues in the hope of finding a weakness that they can exploit with Starmer. So it may be, it may be because they both do focus groups, it may be wise for Starmer not to be interesting. The bizarre thing is that, you know, Uxbridge is not the entire country. Green policies are popular. 75% of people are concerned with climate change. Six out of 10 think governments is not doing enough. Is simply concentrating on the, the kind of wealthy suburban possibly retired SUV driver. Is it actually bad politics? It could be bad politics. I noticed that Sadiq Khan over the weekend, for example, tweeted a doctor who specialises in lung problems, essentially saying that ULEZ, ultra low emission zones, are a good idea unless you want to cause asthma and other problems in our children. That was I'm simplifying, I'm not a doctor, but that's essentially what, what she was saying. So the argument on the other side is actually very strong. Most of us, we quite like to live in a planet that is habitable rather than inhabitable. And most of us would like to see our children being able to walk to school down urban roads without either getting polluted by traffic or getting some kind of nasty disease. So it's kind of obvious where the dividing line is. And Starmer could be a bit more bold, but I take it, return to what I said before, I suspect that he has been told just steady as she goes. We'll see how long that lasts. This brings us to uh, the question of low traffic neighbourhoods, which is also uh, being forced onto the agenda this week. Sunak says through the the various conduits and the various briefs that he'll be reviewing low traffic neighbourhoods and reviewing the 20 mile per hour speed limit. Now, neither of these things are in his remit. Local councils make these decisions. LTNs, in fact, were encouraged by the Conservative government and, in fact, made uh, preconditions for, for funding. So he's kind of running against his own policy. But more importantly, this is huge centralisation in a country that's already centralised, in a country where you know the debate about devolving powers locally is very much heading in, in, in the opposite direction of centralisation, where the hell is this coming from? Is it symbolic? Will it even happen? Yeah, I doubt it. I mean, look, this is the same government. To give some credit to Michael Gove, the fact that the Greater Manchester area and the West Midlands, the two mayors, one of whom happens to be Labour Party Mayor Andy Burnham and Andy Street in the, the West Midlands, who's Tory, have got many more powers. Both of these mayors welcome it. I know that a lot of other mayors think this is a great idea. We need to decide local issues in local areas. It's kind of obvious. So that that's one thing that Gove has pushed through this Sunak government. But you you're right. See, I don't think it's ever going to happen. And also, Labour again has an open goal here. 
what is Sunak actually saying? Let's have high traffic neighborhoods. Let's mm. have your kids uh, breathe in the fumes from from uh, lots of cars stuck in your your side street. I don't think so. So of course, there's always resistance to change. There was resistance, and again, to re- return to Sadiq Khan, he points out that there was great resistance in 1858 to building sewers in London because it was a bit inconvenient for the horses and carts. So some people didn't like it. But I think the great stink of 1858 was probably something we don't want to repeat. And so the great stink of now is exactly what Sadiq Khan and the doctor that he tweeted of suggesting, which is that it is bad for our health. And we all know it. It's not not as if there's a great deal of debate about the science of this. But it's not about logic, is it? It's about dragging the debate uh, into the into the world of the irrational, because the you know the pro car lobby that you know this this word motorist, I hate this word motorist, as if it's kind of an identity or 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 even a, a kind of a philosophy. You know, people make their political decisions purely emotionally, particularly in that area. And you know, you can turn around and say, "Why are you worried about you, Les? Uh, nine out of ten cars in your area are compliant. Why are you worried about you, Les? It's not even going to be introduced in your area." But it doesn't matter because the people that they're talking to have this visceral emotional attachment to their cars. I think that's true. But I think that's true of a lot of other hot button issues. It's true true of gender issues. It's true of education issues and so on. So what we can expect, I think the thing that I find most dispiriting is that why I think we should be electing governments is to solve problems. This government seems to be interested in creating problems and creating division and not pulling us together and deliberately finding the most divisive issues without offering solutions to any of them. And I think that is going to be a problem for the future. And it's a problem that is taken up by sections of our press, unfortunately, who attempt to divide us among ourselves when it is pretty obvious that most of us would like to live with clean air rather than dirty air. But that is actually what the issue is. Just to wrap this particular thing up, is this kind of stuff authentic to Sunak's character? He's tried to present himself as the sensible, reason-driven, calming influence after the madness of the last two prime ministers. He's not a hard man, and yet he's now trying to present himself as you know, tough on tough on green crap, pro motorist. Can he carry it off? No, basically. I, I think you're you're absolutely hit on the problem. I don't think he knows really what he stands for, except to be in power, to be rich, to be wealthy, to be uh, to be prime minister. What is the vision thing of Rishi Sunak? The vision thing appears to be re-elect me. It didn't work for George Bush Sr. He didn't have a particular vision. He was just riding on the coattails of others who did. And in Sunak's case, his entire selling point, which didn't really work with his own party to begin with, as we well know, is I'm not going to be as bad as Liz Truss. I'm not going to be as flaky as Boris Johnson. That is not a great selling point. So the real Rishi Sunak has stood up and he is a wibble wobble man. He will do whatever it takes to try to stir up people. And that is what I find dispiriting. It is not a solution for our problems. Well, you will like the political fact of the weekend, Gavin, from Stu in Pool on Twitter, or on X, as we have to call it now, who points out that the length of time from Nadine Dorries resigning with immediate effect to not actually resigning has now lasted longer than Liz Truss's entire premiership. <laughs> That's astonishing. <laughs> and it was about as effective. Meanwhile, in the British political hellscape, 
Nigel Farage this week will continue to try and keep focus on the debanking issue that has given him a new lease of life. He's launching a website to help people who think they've been denied banking services because of their political views. And he claims without evidence that a thousand people a day are losing their accounts. Gavin, are we ever going to be rid of him? No, <laughs> I don't think so. I'm going to pay considerable tribute to Nigel Farage here. He has got a real nose for populist issues. He absolutely is milking this and he's doing it brilliantly. You know, he knows that our banks are really annoying. They have closed branches all over the place. There are queues to get in if you actually want to talk to somebody. If you've ever called them, they're always experiencing a really high level, an unusually high level mm. of calls at the moment. You know this. In terms of small businesses, and I know this from friends and others, money laundering requirements for people who are not money laundering are quite extraordinary. And I can think of one case that I know quite well of someone who has filled in the forms repeatedly and gets a note back from a, a particular banking group which says you've done very well, that's it. We needn't bother you for another year on the same day as getting another demand to fill in more forms about money laundering. So we don't really like our banks. They do not provide a very good service. Some of us wonder why we even have one at all, but you have to have them. So Nigel Farage has actually tapped into something, whatever the rights and wrongs of his case, I don't really know how much money he's got and why banks with coots and, and so on. I don't know any... I don't think I know anybody who banks with coots, but he's onto something and he's done it actually very well. And I think we should pay note to that. Outside the UK, there's been a coup in Niger, the largest country in West Africa. It's a very important country for the Sahel region, which is beset by jihadists and military regimes. Niger was supposed to be a cornerstone of stability. What's going on there, Gavin? Well, I wish I could tell you exactly. What we seem to know is that nothing is final there. The French government are saying there has been a coup, but it may or may not be completely successful. Who knows? I think the interesting thing is this is not an Islamist coup against the elected leader, President Bazoum, Mohammed Bazoum. He has been ousted by General Chihani, who is head of the presidential guard. So this is a palace, literally a palace it's very old-fashioned, quite 70s in its way. <laughs> it's very 70s, isn't it? And you know what? They take over the radio station and they do the broadcast. It's quite, you know, they don't do it on Twitter or X or whatever it's called. So the French do not consider it final. It has been, I understand, the fifth successful military coup since independence in 1960. So this is a region of obviously great political instability. It's also a region of considerable importance, partly because of the minerals and partly because there's so many uh, countries which are involved with Islamist problems, problems with extreme Islamism. So it does matter, but I suspect that the question of who is leading Niger is someone selected from a small group of people, all of whom wear uniforms. It is like something out of Alistair MacLean. Niger produces 7% of all global supplies of uranium, it has some of the lowest living standards in the world, and there is quite a disturbing Russian connection. The only people who welcomed the coup was uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin of Wagner, and they have a presence in, in Niger. They've been accused of waging disinformation campaigns against President Bazoum, and some supporters of the coup have been waving the Russian flag. So while one looks at it, you know, possibly as an isolated thing, actually, clearly, it isn't. It's part of Russia's attempt to insert itself into Africa, work itself into the fabric of economies and political systems and become entrenched there. 
Yes, although I have to say that there are those who say, and I think this is coming from French diplomatic sources, that the Wagner Group has not been directly involved in this. But who, who knows, frankly? I mean, what do they mean by directly? <laughs> what are a bunch of Russians doing in the middle of Niger anyway with, with guns? So it is absolutely, fog for the rest of us, it's a bit fog of war, isn't it? Yeah. While we're on Russia, uh, President Zelensky has said that war is coming to Russia after Ukraine launched drone attacks in Moscow. Is this a, a change in the tenor of the war attacks in the Russian capital? Well, we can't predict exactly what will happen. But what we do know is that there have been attacks already. There have been drones shot down. There have been other drone attacks which may or may not have been successful. This is also obviously the fog of war. There are clearly anti-Putin people within Russia, whether they are Ukrainian or Russian Russians who sympathize with Ukraine or what entirely is going on it is absolutely not clear. It is, however, clear that this is a good propaganda move by the Ukraine government to say that you are hitting us, you are hitting, you're hit, killing our civilians day after day with rocket attacks on what are only civilian facilities, and we can do the same to you. Now, whether it happens or not, that is obviously the, the big question. The really big question, however, is how on earth is this war ever going to end? And I was listening to Peter Ricketts, Lord Ricketts, the first uh, British National Security Advisor the other day, suggesting that it would go on for quite a while and uh, it would end in some kind of stalemate. But it has to end sometime, doesn't it? We, we assume it does have to end. And the prospect of I, I don't know, uh, the boundary between North and South Korea being replicated in Eastern Europe. Uh, in other words, a demilitarized zone, but two combatants who are not completely giving up the idea of combat. That would be, maybe it would be the least worst solution uh, to what we're we're seeing now. But obviously the war is going to go on for quite a considerable time. Yeah, Putin loves his frozen conflicts. While we continue our world tour of misery, uh, civil disobedience is continuing in Israel after Netanyahu expanded government powers to remove Supreme Court oversight, Israeli Defence Force reservists are refusing to turn up for duty, and there are reports of a middle-class exodus as educated secular Israelis start to leave the country. Gavin, how do you expect this to develop this week? Well, this is, this is very, very interesting. I mean, what is clear? Israel is a democracy, and we can talk about uh, the treatment of Palestinians and all that another time. But it's not only a democracy, it's a democracy where people are very, very proud of its democratic principles in an area, a region, where democratic principles are not seen in the observance. They're more in their, the fact that they're lacking. It's a vibrant democracy. And I can, I can tell you, because I, I went to a gig last week where there was an Israeli singer at one point, and she was leaving the gig to go back to take part in these demonstrations because this is felt particularly by, she's about 30, that by the younger Israelis, this is the future of our democracy. And it is seen as something which is being imposed upon them. In other words, what's at issue here is, is something that we lack in this country, actually, checks and balances in how the executive, the government actually runs things. And we have seen with Boris Johnson, the abuses of just trying to railroad things through. Now in Israel, the idea of sidelining the Supreme Court, rather like our own dear friends who tried to talk about the, the, the British courts as enemies of the people, you may remember a few mm -hmm. years ago, it's become much more serious in Israel and it does not seem to be very popular. Haaretz, which is a liberal Israeli newspaper, was suggesting that Netanyahu, the prime minister, has got very little support for this, even within Likud, his own party. But he does have support outside his own party with what are seen as certain uh, more extreme 
parties within Israel. But many people are not prepared to take it. And I think one of the things that's most interesting is that the relationship between the Israeli army, which is a conscript army, and everybody takes part in it, is seen as a civil duty of people to be in the Israeli army. And again, we can talk about how they handle things on a separate occasion. But if you're a young Israeli and you see this as part of your duty, you are saying, or many of them are saying, we're not going to do national service for the Netanyahu government. We're going to go on strike. A military going on strike. This is profoundly significant. And it's difficult quite to see how it will end. But I suspect Netanyahu, who's a very, very wily character, is in real political trouble here. Finally, Elon Musk has found yet another way to enrage people in San Francisco by putting a huge strobing X logo on top of the former Twitter building on Market Street, lighting up the street below. People say they can't sleep and the city authorities are investigating. It's like he's in a race with Farage to be the most annoying person on the planet. Gavin, is this the week that Musk finally removes every last vestige of the Twitter identity? You know, the logos are disappearing. I woke up this morning and my Twitter app had disappeared, been replaced by an X app. Uh, The tweet button is going to be replaced by post. Are we looking at the last days of Twitter? It looks like it, doesn't it? It certainly does. I mean, it does remind me about the old joke, how do you make a billion dollars, start with 200 billion and be Elon Musk? (laughs) 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 Look, there's a cunning plan in there somewhere. And the cunning plan is perhaps incomprehensible to to the likes of you and me, because we're not worth $200 billion. But neither is Elon Musk anymore. anymore, yeah. I, I I don't know where this is going. I'm I'm a bit sad. I mean, I think Twitter's got lots of lots of things wrong with it anyway. But it, at least it, you could block lots of idiots and contact other people who are interesting and read things that you that open your mind to things. Uh, Elon Musk seems to be, have a completely different view of this. I don't know. I've tried to migrate to Threads. I don't know if you've done it too. I've had a look at it and um, I've set up a, a Threads thread, but I'm not fully enthusiastic about it yet, but perhaps I will be. But it is very, very odd, isn't it? I mean, it's almost, can you imagine, can you imagine the equivalent in a butcher's shop selling, selling top quality meat and suddenly saying, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to, I don't know, sell grapes. Uh, it's just, or sell paperback novels. It is a very, very odd thing for someone running what could be a successful business to do, it seems to me. But he's got a cunning plan. I just don't understand it because I'm not smart enough. I think the cutting plan is he's going to tear off the mask and it was a Zuckerberg clone underneath. It was Agent Zuckerberg destroying the whole thing. In the craziest piece of brand destruction ever, it makes new Coca-Cola look like a genius move. And that's Start Your Week for the week of 31st of July 2023. We hope you found it useful. Thank you, Gavin, for getting up early to face it all. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Bunker Daily. And of course, the panel show is back as well as a special monthly edition. So you might want to have a listen to that now. came out on Sunday. Don't forget, you can get all of our stuff a day early when you support us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more and to see our lovely new supporter merchandise, which is making its debut today. Thanks for listening. Now here's Gavin with some thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Yes, a huge thanks from me for backing the bunker to Paul Rag Sykes, new BLTP and Kenneth Gordon. We'll see you next time.
Party a Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Andrew Harrison with Gavin Eslow. The producer was Katrin Nemeshevich and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, Start Your Week from the Bunker is a Podmasters production.